Well, good morning, everybody. If you want to take out your worship folder, uh, I don't, I'm not going to insult your intelligence by reading you the things that are in there, but there are some really good things that are coming up in the life of our church that I'd encourage you to take a look at at some point. It's also a place you can take notes in there, and there's a Connect card you can fill out and drop in the offering in a little bit And at that point in the service. And uh, one of the things I would encourage you to do, too, is to write down anything on there that you would like the church to pray about. If you need it to be kept confidential, just share it among myself and the elders and Brian Heinrich. You can mark it confidential and it will only go there. But otherwise, if you have something you want to pray about or just give God praise about, you put it on there and it'll be shared with our prayer team, which is about half the church at least of you get the prayer list. If you would like to be in the prayer ministry, all you have to do is mark on there that you want to be. Just write it somewhere on there. We'll add you to the email distribution list. and You can pray for the needs of our church. It's one thing we can do together as a church family. Uh, do that. One thing I want to talk about that's in here, um, the membership forum today, um, I apologize, but I'm not feeling real hot today. So if you want to just pray for somebody, you can pray for me. Um, we're going to have to go ahead and postpone the membership forum because I'm just praying I make it through the message here. Um, and I'm fine. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But I'm, early in my career, in my ministry, when I was still in college, I had a colleague who would call me, and he'd be like, on Saturday night or Sunday morning, and say, I'm not feeling good. Can you preach for me? So I swore I will never do that to anybody else. So you get sick O'Brien instead of stressed out Brian Heinrich today. <laughs> and, and if I do, I'm not going to get sick in front of you. I'll, Brian can come down and finish the message, and he'll do a wonderful job. So you just be thinking about me for that. But I do have to let you know the membership forum. Those of you who are coming today, I apologize. We will have another one again every month. And you don't even have to go to the forum to become a member here. You can just talk to me or one of our leaders, one of our elders, and we'd be happy to help you put your membership in this church family. We would love for you to be part of this if you're not already a member here uh, because there's some great things that God's doing through this church and I think that he has a, a future for us there's things that he wants us to do in this community and I'd love for you to be a part of it and so there you go well we're talking about love we're talking about relationships we're talking about marriage and I have some sad news for you this morning uh, it's a sad story I apologize I have to bring this to you too I mean kind of a downer day right but Poldy and Bibby are breaking up I can see it on your face. I know, I know it's bad news, right? Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Please, Brian, say it's not so, right? Actually, what you're thinking is, who in the world are Poldy and Bibby, and why do I even care? <laughs> Actually, they're giant tortoises. They live in the Austrian zoo, and after being together in a relationship for 115 years, they are going their separate ways. Slowly, because they're turtles, but they're, they're, they're going separate ways, worlds apart. You know, things have been pretty testy between the two of them for a while now. Uh, there's this... I think the straw that broke the turtle's shell came when Bibby, who's the female, started chewing on Poldy's shell. I'm not an expert in turtle psychology, but I'm pretty sure that in turtles, and when you get to domestic violence and you're, you're gnawing on your partner's back, that's a troubling sign right there. You need some couples therapy. Probably in human relationships, too, if your spouse is gnawing on your back, there's something you need to work out there. So the Austrian zoo, they're like, these, they've been together for over a century. We've got to work this out. So they're like, what do we do? They tried aphrodisiacs. They tried games. They tried couples therapy. Nothing's working. Uh, the zoo director there is a lady named Helga Hopp, and she told the Austrian Times, we just get the sense that they just can't stand the sight of each other anymore after 115 years. What they did is they finally go, this, we just got to do something. They took Poldy. Uh, into a separate enclosure entirely, which is a big move, becoming a bachelor after a century and a quarter, right? So he's out on his own. I don't recommend biting your partner as a way of breaking things off, but you got to hand it to Bibby, right? After over a century of marriage, 
moving out on her own. She's kind of coming out of her shell there, isn't she? If, if you didn't laugh, I was going to tell you that Randy the drummer told me to tell that joke, so <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. So last week, I, I opened, as we opened this series, with the question, is it possible for two people to stay happily together forever? Is that really possible? And, and you know, because there's a lot of things in our culture right now that say, no, it's not. There's like that tension in us that marriage is risky and not very many people seem to go the distance anymore. But then there's something else in you that says, I believe with all my heart that Disney got it right. There is happily ever after. That two people can end their life best friends. And there's something in you that wants that. And there's a pull. And no matter what you've seen in culture, no matter what you've experienced personally, no matter what you've seen in your family, there's something in you that just says, I really think this is possible. I think this is possible for me. This is what I aspire to. This is what I want. And so we looked at that, and we realized that we're not going to get a whole lot of help from our culture when it comes to figuring this out, which is a good thing that Jesus has actually spoken about this because we have this desire, but we don't know what to do. Jesus, in the midst of that, gives a teaching that's amazingly clear. It was to his disciples about how we're supposed to treat one another and how we're to treat the world, but you can put that through the lens and the filter of marriage. And he gave this command in John 13, 34. He said, Here's a new command for you guys. Love each other. As I have loved you, you love one another. And what he's doing is refocusing our thoughts about what it means to love somebody. We, we think about love like falling into love, like it's a noun, like you fall into it like it's a swimming pool, or you fall out of it like a chair. And Jesus says, no, I don't want you to treat it like a noun. I want you to start treating it like a verb. It's something that you do for the other person. And, and he says, I don't want you to take your cue about what it means to love other people from your culture. There may be some good things there. I don't want you to take your cue from what your mom and dad or your grandparents had, though it may have been wonderful. I want you to love each other the way I loved you. It's a God type of love that says, you first, I'm going to sacrifice of myself for you. Whether or not you reciprocate, whether it ever comes back my way, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to take action. I'm going to sacrifice of myself to, to show love to you. And so that's what Jesus teaches us. Today I want to turn to a passage in the Bible. Ginger already referred to it in her communion talk. Uh, Philippians 2, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If you've got the app, the Bible app on your phone, you can pull it up. It'll be on the screen as well. And we're going to get some very practical teaching on taking Jesus' uh, teaching about love and putting it into practice in our lives. I've got to tell you, this is very practical stuff today. If you're married or if you anticipate being married at some point or if you've got a marriage that maybe is hanging on by a thread, this is stuff that will help you today. But I have to tell you, this is difficult as well. Okay? So Philippians... In your Bible, it's just another couple of pages, but it was originally a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to some friends of his in a, in a Greek city called Philippi. It's in Greece. Uh, he started a church there, and so he's writing back to his friends in this church that he established. And as he's writing them, he's just, for one thing, he's just wanting to encourage his friends. But beyond that, he's like thankful because they sent him a financial gift in his ministry as a, a church planter. But then he's also got wind of a problem in the church, so he's writing to help correct that. There's there's some people in the church that aren't getting along with each other, and he's want to help them figure it out. In fact, as you go later into Philippians, he actually names two of the ladies who are having a fight with each other. Just an aside, how would you like to get called out in a letter from the Apostle Paul that makes it into the Bible? For all of eternity, you're going to be known as the two ladies who are having a church fight. And we know their names, but Paul says, let me help you with this. I'm going to give you some things here. What he does is he draws on the example of Jesus, and he applies it to their situation here. And so we're going to look at this, this passage today in Philippians 2. It really is written about Christian relationships, but I want to look at it through the lens and the filter of our marriage relationship and see what we can apply there because it certainly does. And so as I said, if, you, if you're married, this is applicable. If your marriage is hanging on by a thread, this is helpful. 
file it away if you're not married, because like I said last week, 90% of us will be married at some point by the time we're 50. So there you go. As we dig into this, I want to just first of all look at some practical steps to follow that Paul gives us. He starts out by saying this in verse 1, follow along. Paul says, guys, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and I'll stop there, these are the ifs, if you got anything good from God, basically what Paul's saying is, if God's done anything good for you in your life, if he's at all at work in your life, if you've got comfort, encouragement, fellowship, and, and so this is right here, the foundation. Uh, in our relationships, it all starts with what God is doing within us, and has God blessed you with his love? And if so, here's the then in verse 2. He says, then if God's done anything good for you, make my joy complete as your friend, as your pastor, as your spiritual father. Make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He's saying, come on, if you're going to make your relationship stronger, you need to get on the same page. Be like-minded. Have the same love. And I would say it this way. What you need to do is embrace unity over uniformity. Embrace unity over uniformity. You don't have to be exactly alike to have the same love. I tell every couple that I have the privilege of marrying the same thing. At some point during the marriage counseling, I probably will say it in their wedding message even. I'll tell them this. You know, you guys are different. And and I don't mean to be patronizing to them. And oftentimes when I'll bring this up in marriage counseling, they'll be like, no, 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 we're just alike. We we complete each other's thoughts and we think about the same things and we, we have the same viewpoints and we even dress alike. And I'm like, okay, this is cute when you're a couple, but you need to realize something. There's gonna come a point when you are married that you're gonna wake up and go, who is this stranger that I married? I don't even know this person. And what happens is in your dating relationship, all those things that are different look cute. They're the things that attract you to that other person. Once you get married, those things that are different that you kind of overlooked, you don't overlook them anymore. And they're not so cute. The things that were cute when you're dating are now annoying, the most annoying things in the world. And you're like, where is my husband? Where is my wife? What have you done with him? Because this is not the same person I was dating. But you've got to resist this urge to go, there's something wrong with you because you're different than me. I got a little quiz for you here. Some of you have been married a while. You'll remember these days when you first got together. Some of you have this to look forward to. Just a little quiz because you need to know what's coming up here. Here's the quiz. First question here. Toilet paper. Does it go over the top or does it hang behind? Say it out loud. Yeah, okay. Second one, toothpaste. Do you squeeze from the end or do you just wherever you happen to grab it? Okay, and do you put the bonus question? You put the cap back on or do, who cares? Okay, all right. The next question here. The hamper. Do the clothes go in it or anywhere near it? It's fine. No no arguments here, please. (laughs) No, none of this. All right, last question. Cabinets and drawers. Shut them when you're done or why bother? Because you're going to be using them again. All right, let's grade this quiz. The correct answers are (laughs) over the top, from the end, put the cap back on, get it anywhere near the hamper and you're fine. It's like horseshoes, hand grenades, nuclear weapons. Close is good enough. And close it when you're done with it. I'll come in our bedroom and every drawer is open. I think, does she do that on purpose just so I'll notice? It doesn't matter. These are just, these are just little things, you know, but then there's the bigger things too in your relationship. And you're like, where in the world did you come up with that viewpoint? And why have I never heard this before? And how could you ever think that? And these things, and we're like, we got to resist that temptation to mold your spouse in your image because if you don't agree with me, you're obviously wrong and something needs to change here. If you're going to be happy in your relationship, you're going to have to resist that temptation. You want to embrace unity, which says we can be on the same page even if we don't totally agree with each other. 
you don't necessarily, are not necessarily always going to see eye to eye on how you raise your kids or the checkbook or the bedroom or the budget or there's so many things in our marriages that we can fight about. At some point, you just got to stop and say, is there a way that we can work this out and maybe we won't come to a total, where we're doing it absolutely the same way, but something that we can both agree to and we can compromise. And you can disagree and have differing opinions, but still work it out. A woman named Yolanda said it this way. She wrote an article for Red Book. She said, and by the way, I'm not reading Red Book. I found this another way. But Anyway, Yolanda says, A lifetime of experience has taught me that in most areas, at most times, I'm right about most things. What shocked me several years into my marriage, though, was the realization that the more right I was, the more discontented my husband and I were as a couple. See, oddly enough, throughout his life, my husband's been under the misguided impression that he's right most of the time. So we lock horns often. She went on to say this, we locked horns until I learned a few things. The more I get to know and appreciate my husband for who he is, the more I respect his positions. It doesn't always mean I agree with him, but I can see the value in striking a balance that satisfies us both. And I love this last line. She wrote, getting your way is usually not as important as finding a way to work together. Right? We embrace unity over uniformity. We may not always be the same, see things the way, same way, do things the same way, but we find a way to unite. So Paul says this next in verse 3. He goes on, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Now what Paul is saying here is, in this love relationship, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That word selfish ambition carries with it the idea of competitiveness. And so if I could sum up what Paul's saying here is he's saying, be deferential rather than demanding. Don't be competitive with each other. Don't compete with your spouse. If you want to stay in love, don't compete with each other and try to one-up each other all the time. For example, when she's telling that story and she's getting it wrong, don't interrupt her and go, no, 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 it was blue, honey. No, 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 it was Friday. Don't you, weren't you even there? There were three, not two. Just let her tell the story wrong. You defer her rather than demand. You don't compete with each other. Maybe you're feeling a little competitive with your husband. Don't try to get his friends to take your side and tell your side of the argument, your side of the story, and try to engage them in that argument there. Don't be competitive with each other. Resist that temptation. And then Paul goes on, and he gives us actually the opposite of selfish ambition, the opposite of competitiveness in the relationship. And he says this, and, and by the way, this is the point of the passage right here. This is an idea that we're about to get into that Paul carries through the whole rest of the teaching. This is, this is it right here. And this is the point where something in you is going to rise up and say, I don't know about this. There's something in you is going to want to push back and say, I don't think this is right. I don't know if I agree with this. I'm not sure that this is in my best interest to do this, if, this next teaching. I'll do it if she does it first or if he goes first. or You know, but I'm just not sure this is going to work out. I think I'll be taken advantage of. But here's what it means to be in love and stay in love. Right here. You ready for it? In humility, consider your spouse better than yourself. In humility, consider others better than yourself. In other words, act like that person is more important than you are. Make decisions as if you really believe she's more important than you are. And again, I know there's something in you that goes, I don't know, but listen to me. Have you ever been in a situation where you were not the most important person? Actually, I know you have, and I'll tell you where. Here it is. Have you ever been to a wedding where you were not the bride or the groom? Do you ever notice how people at a wedding where you're not the bride or the groom, they stand in line for like an hour and a half to go talk to the bride or groom? How long do they stand in line to talk to you? 
You notice when the bride walks into the room, everybody turns and stands up and watches her walk in? How many people stood up and watched you walk in when you weren't the bride or the groom? When you're at the wedding and you're not the bride or the groom, in that context, you are not the most important person in the room. Now, I'm not saying in this that by saying treat somebody more important than you, I'm not saying that some people are just intrinsically better than other people, that some people just have more value than others. I'm not in any way saying that in, in the overall scheme of things that there are some people who are just better and superior and more important. In some contexts, aren't there people who are more important than you in that specific situation, that setting, that time, that place? You ever seen a war hero? Maybe talk to them, and there's something in you that goes, oh, I, just, I would aspire to be like that, to be brave like you were in that situation. And as you talk to them, you just have this sense of being in the presence of greatness. And you know, not in the big scheme of things, not in the whole course of human events, but in this moment, I'm not the most important person in this room. You go to a book signing with a famous author. You see a, an actor, an actress. And in that moment, again, not in the big situation, but in that moment, I'm not the most important person in the room. Can you imagine being invited to the White House and you get to meet the president in the Oval Office? I don't care if you voted for the guy or not, whoever it happens to be that invited you. In that moment, in that setting, the, the Oval, all the decisions that were made there, the president of the United States, in that moment, who's the most important person in the room? Is the president better than you? No. I mean, we're Americans. We get that. But in that moment, who's more important? And how do you respond when you're not the most important person in the room? You defer. You show respect. You lean in and listen because you realize there's someone more important in this situation right now than me. And so you laugh even if they say something that's not that funny. You, with your facial expressions, with everything, you show respect, you defer, you, uh, <coughs> you don't say things that are disrespectful. In every way, you give the sense to that person that you matter more than I do. Not in the big scheme of things, but in this situation. And Paul says, that's how you treat other people, and specifically in the marriage relationship, that's how you treat your spouse. People who stay together instinctively do this, or intentionally do this. If you want to stay in love with someone, you treat your husband, you treat your wife, every decision, every conversation, like you're the most important person in this relationship. Can you imagine two people doing that for each other? <coughs> and you might be saying, I, I know this. I said, like, you want to push back, like, if I do this, I'm pretty sure I'll be taken advantage of. I'm not sure that that'll come back my way if I do that. You might be taken advantage of. It may not come back your way. I don't know. But somebody's got to choose to go first. Right? In that moment, God's saying through Paul to us, if you want a strong relationship, start treating that person as if they're more important than you. In the big scheme of things, is any one person more important than No. But in that relationship, what would happen if you started doing that? I'll tell you, any, go find somebody who's been married happily ever after, and you just aspire to be like them someday. They'll tell you, this is two people doing this. No, you first. No, 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 you first. No, you're more important. No, no, you. Deferring to each other rather than demanding. And you did this when you first met each other. I mean, that's how you went from dating to a stronger relationship. You put your best foot forward. Whatever he said was so interesting. Whatever she said was so insightful or so funny. People who stay together just never stop doing that. And so that's the kind of attitude and respect you want to have for each other. It's an intentional decision. It's a, it's a lifestyle you develop with your spouse to say, you first, and the other person saying, no, you first. 
And it's a beautiful thing to behold when two people do this for each other. Now Paul goes on. He doesn't stop. He goes on in verse 4 and he says this. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Another way of saying that is, you know, whatever their thing is, you make their thing your thing. Whatever it is their interest, you, you show interest in what they're interested in. And you think that last one was hard? Man, this one, for me at least, is way up there. You know, because here, here's the thing. As Andy Stanley says it so well, he says, and, and follows because it's a really deep thought, I am naturally interested in things that interest me. How about that for the understatement of the message, right? It's like getting a report that says, people who are further away from you are not necessarily smaller. <laughs> I'm naturally interested in things that are interesting to me. And what's the flip side of that? I am not naturally interested in things that are uninteresting to me. So what happens, because what you're interested in is where your time, your energy, effort, attention, your money, everything goes to what you're interested in. What if your spouse is interested in something else? Houston, we got a problem. What Paul says is if you want this relationship to be strong, be at least as interested in the things that they're interested in as the things that you're interested in. You intentionally express interest in those things. You make their thing your thing. Here's how that works at our house, and I will, I will hands down admit that Kirsten's a lot better at this than I am. Really, she, I got a lot of working to do on this, but Kirsten's really good at this. And I'll tell you one example of how. Um, I, I like the Civil War. I like to read about it. I like books about it. I like to go to the battlefields. I'm, you know, when we go on vacation, my kids all know we're trying to find where the Civil War battlefield is on the way. Um, so what that means for our family is Kirsten's been to Antietam when it was 104 degrees. My family's been, we've been to Richmond, and we've been to Libby Island, and we've been to, here's how much my wife loves me. Seven months pregnant with our first daughter, Alyssa, you know, like having to stop and pee every 15 minutes pregnant. We did Gettysburg, seven months pregnant in October, and it was hot for October. It, it was our anniversary, too. And she, oh, and it was great. I mean, she was like so interested. Oh, this is the peach orchard. What happened here? And the devil's den. And okay, I see this in Little Round Top. Just great. How interested do you think Kirsten really is in the Civil War? Probably about as much as I am in shoe shopping. You know? But she never lets on because she's trying to be at least as interested as I am in something that I'm interested in. And you know, it's so, this is so hard. And all of us have a decision to make. It's not, oh, do I like Civil War battlefields or or dress shopping, you know, it's not that. It's really, it comes down to, will I at least make the effort to be as interested in what they are as they are? And two people doing this together. Will I look only to my own interests, or will I look to her interests as well? Will I look to his interest? And I'll tell you this, ladies, one of the things that you can do to strengthen your marriage, and I'm speaking specifically, I don't want to, you know, just buttonhole you or pigeonhole you, but if you find out whatever it is recreationally that your husband likes to do, and you try to do that with him, that's amazing the conversations you'll have. If he likes to go running, go running with him. If he likes to go biking, try to go biking with him. Whatever it is, recreationally that he likes to do, join him in it. Just a little tip for the day there. I'll tell you, and guys, you can do the same thing. You may find yourself stopping at every Russell Stover's outlet in America. But you do the things that you, your spouse finds interest in. And that's where you find that deep and lasting intimacy. When you make their thing your thing. Now, here's the last thing, is we're going to talk about this. And, and I just, I know what you're th maybe thinking. You might be going, yeah, this is really cool, Brian. And, and in, a, in a perfect world, I bet people will do that. But 
This is like 2013 in, in Darden Prairie, and I'm pretty sure nobody actually does any of this stuff, or to any great extent. And so there might be something in your mind that goes, this would be awesome, and if maybe there's some people out there who actually got this figured out, but I'm pretty sure that I can't do this. And I think it's like the Apostle Paul reads our mind, and he goes like, I know what you're thinking, and I know you're thinking nobody actually does this. So let me give you an example that you can follow of somebody who actually has done all of these things. And so we go down here. And so it's like we were talking about Jesus said, as I've loved you, so you love one another. Paul says, let me show you how Jesus loved you. Let me show you how that worked out in his life as he made your thing his thing and as he deferred. And so here we go in verse 5. This is a powerful example to imitate here. Paul says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So in our context, as you approach your marriage, as you approach your marriage partner, approach it the same way Jesus approached his relationship with us. You take the same attitude. Verse 6, what was that? Who being Jesus, very, and being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to cling on to. Now, I'm going to kind of push some of the theology of this aside because we're really wanting the practical intent of what it is. But in a nutshell, what Paul is saying here is, Jesus is God. There wasn't like a time in Jesus' life like he was born and then that's when he began and then he kind of worked his way up the ladder to becoming God. It's not like that. Jesus has always been God. And before the world was created, Jesus was. He was with the Father in the beginning. It was actually Jesus that carried out the creation of the world. In Colossians, it tells us that the whole universe holds together because Jesus wants it to through his will. And so Jesus has always been God, but he did not consider equality with God something to cling on to. In other words, he was willing to let go of all the rights, the privileges, the power, the authority, the, the awe and the majesty and the worship that he got as God. He's willing to give that up to become a human being. He didn't cling to his rights. You know, in, in the marriage relationship, you may walk into the relationship thinking, you know, I'm at least 50% of this, right? So I've got some rights here. I've got some expectations that should be met. And Jesus is our example here. And you approach your relationship with your spouse the same way Jesus approached us. And Jesus was willing to let go of his rights. He didn't cling to all that he deserved as God. He's our model in this. In, in fact, if you look through, and I challenge you to do this, just read through the Gospels, just find one instance where, God, where Jesus pushed the God button in order to help himself. It never happened. Jesus never once leveraged who he was for his own personal advantage or gain. And you think about this. Any room that Jesus ever walked into, he was immediately the most important person in the room. Right? He walk into any restaurant. It's crowded. You're not getting in and for the next 45 minutes. Jesus could just walk right in and go, I think I'm going to be taking that chair right there because I'm Jesus. And so you'll be getting up now. And I've got 12 hungry friends, so you all will be getting up too. And we're going to be taking the Texas Roadhouse over because I'm Jesus. I'm God. Never did that. Never pushed the God button. Never took advantage of the fact that he was God. He never leveraged any of that. And so many times we do that in marriages, though, don't we? Like, I'm the one making the majority of the income, so I should have at least a, a bigger say here. I gave birth to those kids, and I've raised them, so I should be able to say, you know, I, I did dishes last night, so I should have some kind of leverage here. Jesus never used who he was for his own advantage. Every time Jesus walked in the room, he's the most important person. He was the bride or the groom. He was the famous author, the actor, the pro athlete, the war hero. The, he, he's all of that. But he never used that to his advantage. Here's what he did instead, verse 7. But instead, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That's what he did. I'm God. 
but I'm willing to humble myself and become one of the created. I'm willing to become a person just like you and experience everything you experience. Did he stop being God when he became a human being? No. Think, think about it this way. Say you got to go see somebody at the hospital, and you get there, and you cannot find a place to park. You end up like being three acres away from the front of the hospital when you finally find a place. You're at the back of the lot. You have no idea even where the front of the hospital is, and you're like sitting in your car like, okay, where do I go now? You get out of your car, and somebody's driving by that looks like they actually know where they're going, so you kind of wave them down, and you go, can you tell me where the, the entrance of the hospital is? The guy, he likes, you know what, I'll just park here with you, and I'll walk in with you and show where you where it's at. So he gets out of his car, and he's got like the white doctor's coat on, and he walks with you toward the front of the hospital. As you get to the entrance, he points to an empty parking spot and says, that's where I usually park. And you look, and the sign there says, chief of surgery. When he parked with you at the back of the lot and walked in with you, at any point in there, did he stop being the chief of surgery at that hospital? So he had the right to park up front, but what did he do? Chose to park back with you so he could help you. He chose to give up his rights so that he could in some way be on your level and help you get where you needed to be. Never gave up being the chief of surgery. He gave up the right to park where he wanted to so he could help you. And that's what Jesus did for us. He gave up all the rights, all the power, the authority, everything that. He didn't stop being God, but he did that so he could have a relationship. In your, in your relationship with your spouse, there's a point where you may need to say, I'm going to be like Jesus. I have the right to this, but I'm going to put my relationship first. And so I'm going to give up the right that I have. And here's what Jesus did. He put aside what he rightfully deserved so that he could serve us. How did Jesus serve us? Did he start making it home in time for supper every night? Bigger than that. I, did he start making sure all the receipts were with the checkbook and make sure that everything got entered in the checkbook and make sure we were watching the... Bigger than that. Did he actually make eye contact with you when you were having a conversation and stop watching TV during that conversation? Bigger than that. Did he go pick up the kids from school without being asked... Bigger than that. Look at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What we see Jesus doing is giving up all of his rights, humbling himself, submitting. It's the creator submitting to the created. And why would he do that? Why in the world would somebody do that? I think about this, and when I think about what Jesus did, he willingly put himself in a place where he was misunderstood. He willingly put himself in a place where he was rejected, in a place where people accused him of being wrong. If there's ever anybody who could say, I am always right, it was Jesus. Any situation, any setting you put him in, he was right. He could go around, and what he could have done is come onto the earth and said, you know what, you're a sinner, and you're a sinner, and you're a sinner. And, hey, don't even try to talk back to me, because I'll tell everybody what you did, and then they'll know you're a sinner. Jesus never did that. He submitted himself even to death. When you look at Jesus on the cross, what you are seeing is him putting your thing ahead of his thing. You see Jesus putting your needs ahead of his needs. And that's our model that we follow. I have the right to this, but I'm not going to exercise my right so that I can serve you, so that I can put you first. He made it possible for us to have a relationship with him, and that's the example do you want to be right or do you want to have a relationship? 
Now, am I saying that we never argue, that we never fight, that we never, you know, like just you always just roll over, you just become a doormat, you just whatever? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is a way to disagree and come to a decision that's respectful to the relationship. Because <coughs> I look at Jesus and I realize that God had a dilemma. I don't know if you can say God had a dilemma, but I think he did. See, he could be right, and he could be in heaven, have all the glory that he deserves, or have no relationship with us, or he could become part of humanity. He could get down in the midst of fallen creation, fallen man who have disobeyed God, and he could be among us. He can give up his rights in order to make the possibility for a relationship be there. He chose to have a relationship with us. And it's a decision we have to have to make. You can't have it both ways and still be in love. You can't have all your rights that you are due and still have a relationship. There's sometimes you're going to have to say, you know what, even though it's my right, you first. And when you look at a, a relationship like that, I think there's something in all of us that says, yeah, that's what I want. That's what I aspire to. There's something that just realize how awesome that would be. And I think that that is what God created the potential for when he created people with a free will. He created the potential for a relationship like this. What would that look like in your relationship today? You know, if you are married or, as I said, maybe it's just hanging on by a thread, if you just said, you know what, today I think I'm going to do things different. I think I'm going to start putting him first. I'm going to start putting her first. What could that do for your marriage if you said, I'm going to be as at least interested in their things as I am in mine. I'm going to defer rather than demand. What could that do for your marriage today if you would do that? Maybe you take a good marriage and make it better. Maybe you could take a failing marriage and, and bring it around. That's a challenge. But I, I think with God's power and his example, you can do that. In fact, I want to pray for you right now. Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, I pray for all the marriages represented in this room. I pray for all the, the people who at some point in the future may be in that kind of a relationship. I pray for those who maybe come out of uh, a relationship and they just would say, I'm single again. I don't know if I ever want to mess with this again. I just pray that wherever we're at, Father, that you would uh, take our hearts and just open something up within us that realizes that there's that potential for that kind of love that says, first of all, that you have loved us and that you've done so many good things for us. And so, Father, I pray that as you uh, have loved us, that we would just be very aware of that pray that we would put that love to work in our lives as we would just imitate that and carry that out. Father, I pray that we would none of us say no to the love that you've offered us through your son, Jesus Christ. So I'm asking if anybody's here this morning, Father, that has never responded to your son, Jesus Christ, and said, he's my Lord, he's my leader, he's my Savior, that today would be the day that you just encourage them to do something about that. I just want to thank you for everything you do for us, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.